Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So since the theme today is uh, appreciation and joy, I just want to start by saying I really appreciate being here and especially being here with Brian. Um, Brian and I met a few years ago. There was a, a meeting of Buddhist teachers called the Gen X meeting and it was uh, 75 teachers born between 74 and or 65 65. Maybe? Yeah. And 80 or something? And 80? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, something like Anyways, that. Anyways, yeah. it was an amazing collection, and Thich Nhat Hanh gave us the monastery that he runs, and um, we spent a week, a week, five days mm-hmm. or something together. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Brian and I really hit it off, which was great. Um, Brian and I uh, uh, both have a background uh, in activist work for many years, and also we both have psychology training, both as psychotherapists, although I'm retired. Um, and uh, we both have three children, and uh, those children are all boys mm-hmm. for now. You never know these days. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and also uh, the eldest son uh, for both of us is from a previous relationship. So we've also been through the no, we haven't been through. We're still in the ongoing hell realm <laughs> of co-parenting. Of co-parenting. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, um, Brian told me when we first met that he thought that our wives would really like each other. And like it's really turned out to be true. Last night, uh, we were at Melissa's house for dinner, and Jesse was in the other room FaceTiming my wife, giving her advice uh, how to pin a kid down who has pink eye and squirt breast milk in his eye. <laughs> this is true. This is what was going yeah. on last night. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> don't use a dropper. Just pin him down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, when Brian and I are together, we have a lot of, a lot of joy. And um, so... Uh, so you've been studying with Brian and together the Brahma Viharas. Um, the one we're going to explore together uh, today is called Mudita, which uh, is a Sanskrit term and a Pali term that means um, appreciative joy. But first, a little background, which is um, Brian during the guided meditation um, used a word two or three times which is uncovering or to uncover 
And this is really one of the principles of this practice, is as you keep committing to uh, ethical practice, to a practice of conduct, as you keep uh, training uh, your attention so that it's not always glued to your favorite fantasies, um, you start to uncover a quality of mind and a quality of heart um, that uh, isn't um, obscured by our habitual emotions and habitual ways of thinking, which is a way of saying that this is such a gentle practice. You just keep going and it keeps working. There doesn't have to be a lot of striving. So if you try and strive for joy, um, you'll miss it again and again and again. And the goal of Buddhist practice uh, and the goal, I think, of all spiritual traditions is to have a really wide and flexible and generous point of view. To really be flexible in our perspective. Not victimized by afflictive emotions, not victimized by habit, and not victimized by um, compulsion. We want to have good conduct. That's the most important thing. And uh, even though, because we're such an anti-meditation culture, uh, we're so obsessed with meditation, uh, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is our conduct. The most important thing is how we live. Uh, it counts for everything. Um, as I said for many of you who were here yesterday, um, how we model this practice and how we embody this practice as teachers, as clinicians, which many of you are, um, as parents, as children of parents, how we model this practice is the most important thing. It's really important for our own lives and also for the ecology of our uh, community. So we train in the viharas to uh, reach this goal, if you will. But it's interesting to examine closely this term Brahma-vihara. Uh, the word Brahma at the time of the Buddha referred to the creator god. Okay, So the Buddha is reworking this idea of the creator god, suggesting that every moment we have creative energy, and what you're going to do with that energy really makes a difference. So this is an interesting way of thinking about creativity. So how you use the ingredients of this moment really makes a difference. So this is Brahma energy. Whenever I hear the word Brahma, I always think of a two-stroke motorcycle engine, which <laughs> makes that sound like, brum, brum. you know that, that acceleration sound? I'm sure there's none in Kelowna. <laughs> Um, and vihara, uh, nowadays, if you travel in Buddhist countries, vihara means a temple. And you will see signs for viharas all over the place. Uh, but the Buddha used the term vihara to mean a refuge or a place where you can dwell. So appreciative joy is not so much somewhere you're trying to get to, but something that's uncovered that you can rest in. In other words, underneath all the a crust of our heart, there is appreciative joy. And I think we all know this. Like, uh, This is what happens a lot on meditation retreats. 
people come on meditation retreat and sometimes it really feels like hard work. And sometimes the retreat is difficult. And then something happens towards the end of a retreat where in the group there's a bubbling up of joy. Almost every retreat I've ever taught, the giggles break out in the room. There's a Zen story, which I won't tell you the whole story because it's quite long, but there's a Zen story where uh, at the end of the story someone asks, um, what is joy? And the person responds, it's like shoveling a lot of shit and finding a jewel. Isn't it like that? Like you sit in meditation and it's not so joyful, right? You sit and it's a lot of shoveling of shit, right? Oh, put that over there. <laughs> come back again to the breath. Come back again to the breath. But as you keep training, this joy emerges, this appreciation emerges. And you notice things happening in your life that are really different. Like somebody in your office gets a promotion and you notice you're happy for them. Okay, maybe that's a stretch, but. <laughs> so the basic idea of mudita is that our minds and hearts are malleable and they can be trained. But what we see in ourselves and what we see in our clients is that we don't really believe that. We like reading books saying things like neuroplasticity. <laughs> But actually, when you examine how people really talk to themselves about themselves, they don't really believe that things are as malleable as they say in the books. And isn't that what's at the heart of rumination? Is that when you look closely at the vortex of ruminative thought, it usually ends with a negative belief about oneself or one's circumstances or one's family of origin or one's community, it ends in a dead end. So the, the proposition of a meditative practice or a contemplative practice is that um, we don't have to continue thinking of ourselves as fixed, as one thing. So mudita means a sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. And when Brian asked me uh, to say a few words about joy, um, one of the things that came to mind, uh, it started because I follow on Instagram uh, this singer named Lord. Does anybody who know this is? I shouldn't admit these things in public. But <laughs> I actually follow her on Instagram. And uh, she took this picture with her parents her, her and her parents went in New, New Zealand, is that where it is? Yeah. In New Zealand to go see Fleetwood Mac, who are on tour right now, like, again. And um, uh, it was the moment when the band was coming on stage. And I started thinking about this a lot, because um, uh, when my son was younger, uh, I have a lot of friends who are musicians, so we would always uh, take my son... Uh, to see music, and if we knew the band, we would always be on the side of the stage. And so you could feel the energy when the lights turn out of everybody getting really amped up. You know what I'm talking about? You know, everyone's really amped up. 
But it's interesting because from the perspective of being on stage, the band gets more amped up <coughs> than the crowd is, actually, by all those people being so excited. And nobody really knows why they're excited exactly. It just kind of like blossoms in the room. And I thought, that's appreciative joy. That's what happens. Nobody's trying to do anything. The lights go out. The crowd's amped up. So the band gets amped up. When the band is happy, the crowd gets more happy. In my mom's old house, um, she had a bathroom where every wall had a mirror on it. So when I would stand up to pee, and I would look beside me, I was peeing infinitely, forever. (laughs) It would just go on forever. And if I looked to the other side, I would see myself turning, and there I was, forever peeing in time and space. And this is how appreciative joy works, exactly like this, is somebody feels your appreciation, and they become joyful. And then when they're joyful, you get joyful. And then when you feel joy because of their joy, they get joyful. And then when they feel joy that you feel joy about their joy, they become more joyful. And it just bounces back and forth until you stick a me in it. (laughs) So until the me shows up and go, oh, I'm really happy for you. And when that happens, the whole thing actually starts to fall apart. Because like love, appreciative joy emerges in certain conditions and doesn't really have anything to do with you. So we say things, for example, like, I love you. But really, love is not something you can do or have or feel or not feel. Love emerges in conditions that don't have that much to do with you. Do you know what I mean by this? If you just think love or appreciation or joy is a feeling, I think you miss it a little bit. I I think it's a condition that emerges when we're really present with another person. And the moment is not pivoting around me and what I think and what I feel and what I want from them. And um, it seems like the deeper levels of joy are the joy we get when other people are joyful. Like if you reflect on some of the truly happy moments in life, they're probably not moments where you were singularly happy all by yourself. They're usually moments where somebody else is really joyful. And you're part of that process. One of the problems with how we're educated in uh, Western psychology, for the most part, is that we learn how to have radar for or be on the hunt for uh, negative patterns and afflictive emotions. And the problem is when you start bringing that attitude into meditative practice, you start to notice how there's this default for many of us who are clinicians where we're always looking for the problem. 
We're always looking for the problem. And unconsciously, that's seeping back and forth between both the therapist and the client. Because the client is also in a psychological culture where they're looking for the problems too. And sometimes we don't see how that's operating. So then when we learn practices like really looking for appreciation or joy, it's hard to try them on. <laughs> because we're used to just seeing like, well, what's underneath that? <laughs> As if the underneath part is the negative part, <laughs> not the positivity. And that's when, why, when Brian says uncovering, I really connect with that. Because we're uncovering, we're looking underneath the negativity. And sometimes we don't see how looking for problems creates problems. So these meditative practices of noticing joy, not just in our own personal experience, but during the day, and we're going to do some exercises together around this, um, helps train the heart to suspend what neuropsychologists nowadays call the uh, negativity bias in the brain. That we notice that our attention continually moves towards the negative. And research shows that the reason why this happens is that because of evolution, we learn more quickly from negative experiences than we do from positive experiences. Right? Like if there's something hot and you touch it and you burn yourself, you learn very quickly from that experience. And so you, your attention tends to dwell on negative experiences. And the research shows that for something to go from an experience into structure, which we call learning, from it to go from an experience into learning, it has to stay in short-term memory for almost 10 seconds. Now, if you look at your mind, you'll notice that you pay attention to negative things for close to 10 seconds all the time. Does everybody agree with this proposition? <laughs> yeah, something negative. Like, if there's something from this morning that you didn't like, when you leave here, you'll keep thinking about it. <laughs> God, that one thing Michael said, like I really didn't connect with. And that might be the dominant thing you leave here with, what you didn't like. Everybody's nodding, which is terrible. <laughs> no pressure for you. Yeah, no pressure. Um, but when something is positive or there's an appreciation of our health right now, or an appreciation of who's in the room right now. Um, we don't stay with it for 10 seconds. So it doesn't translate into structure. It doesn't translate into learning. So when there are meditation practices that teach us how to stay present and how to start looking at joy or looking at appreciation or just looking at our bodies and our breathing or looking at community, they interrupt the negativity bias in the brain. So you don't have to worry about trying to train towards becoming a more appreciative person. You don't have to try to become more joyful. 
If you keep doing this practice, it starts to undo the negativity bias, which uncovers a wellspring of appreciation, of gratitude, and of joy. So I want that to be clear. You don't have to try to become joyful. And you don't have to limit your experience of joy to your own joy, which is the really good news. Because that means if there's 7 billion people, that multiplies the possibility of us feeling joy by 7 billion. Is feeling joy for other people. In the Tibetan tradition, about a thousand years after the early teachings of the Buddha, a psychological theory develops called near enemy and far enemy. And it's a really helpful um, uh, paradigm. It takes every mental state and suggests that there's a far enemy to that mental state, which is the enemy that you can recognize very easily. You get some distance from, you can see it. And there's a near enemy, which is uh, kind of like that state, but in drag. Like you can kind of, it kind of seems like that state, but it's not that state. So um, the far enemy of uh, appreciation and joy is resentment. If we have repetitive stories about people in the past, or if we don't have assertiveness, and we're in relationships where we're constantly saying yes, even though we don't mean yes, we start to develop a resentment. And I've had this idea for a while of creating an app on uh, a phone where you take, so the app is a meter that measures resentment. And you put it over your heart on like a really big gold chain, so like a Kanye West kind of chain. You put, you put the app over your heart and you turn it on and then you just go through your day. So then something happens like you're in the kitchen and someone says, could you just load the dishwasher again? And you're like, yeah, sure, no problem. And then it goes, <laughs> Or you're going to sleep at night and there's something you really need to say to your partner, but you're like, oh God, I don't know how to say it. I'm not going to say anything. The meter just goes, and you can't adjust the volume. And it's facing out, so everybody sees it. And I think if we had resentment meters, it would be so good for our relationships. Because we would see the dynamics that happen that lead to resentment. And resentment kills appreciation. It's the far enemy. So when we feel resentment, it's really important that we look at how it's compounding our problems. Really look closely at that. The close enemy or the near enemy of uh, appreciative joy is frivolity. That's where you walk around trying to be a happy person, trying to be a joyful person. Have you ever met people like this? They have a big smile, but something about it seems a little bit superficial. It's covering over, um, well, it can be covering over many, many things. So the near enemy kind of looks like appreciation, but 
It's not appreciation. Putting on a happy face. So part of our practices, we need to be able to move towards what's happening in our experience without holding on to it. If things are difficult, we move towards it without holding on to it. But as therapists, and I say this because many of you are trained this way, we tend to move towards experience and look at it through a negative lens, through a pathological lens. And because we're working with clients who have grown up in a Western psychological culture, they're doing the same thing. So it's really important that we train in practices that keep clinical dialogue in the present moment. You don't have to look at the past through pathological lens, through a negative lens, like a skewed archaeologist. If you keep focused on what's happening in the present moment, you'll see that whatever part of the past one needs to look at, it's encoded in the present moment. And it will be there. And that's what you pay attention to. And if you keep doing this, you start to undo the negativity bias that breeds resentment, that breeds anger, that breeds all of the afflictive emotions that keep us self-centered and unable to be happy for other people. And maybe this should be the sign that our clients are moving towards wholeness is that they're happy for other people or that they appreciate coming to the session. If you look at all of the really troubled states, from substance misuse to anger, trouble, to intense jealousy, the stuff that people come into therapy with, um, you could categorize all of that as having just too narrow a point of view. The story someone's telling about their lives is just too narrow. And our work is to stay focused on what's really happening in the present moment so we can be surprised that a new story can emerge. A new, we call this insight. But what is that really? What's insight? Insight is when you see something happening from a completely new perspective that you could never have rehearsed. It's not that our stories go away. Yes, in meditation practice sometimes our stories go away. But they come back again. But the sign that things are moving clinically is that new stories can emerge. And I think what Mudita teaches us as clinicians is that the new story that can emerge is a story about appreciation, even for past wounds. Maybe we call that forgiveness. And I would say that the, the goal of the, synth the synthesis between 
Buddhist practices and clinical work is that over time, our clients start to appreciate their lives in a, more, in a, in a deeper way. It's not that our clients become happy. It's not that they can go back to work more successfully. It's that they appreciate their lives. And when somebody appreciates their lives, the precepts that we explored at the beginning all emerge naturally out of that. When you appreciate your life, you don't want to inject anything into your body. When you appreciate your life, you want to eat in a more balanced way. When you appreciate your life, you cut off relationships with people who are harming you. So uh, my goal for talking about mudita was to offer a kind of collage, many different ways of thinking about mudita as a practice for this group. And now I hope that we can all talk together, uh, have a discussion about some of the things that I've said. Then we're going to have a short break. Uh, and then Brian and I have some practices for you to do together uh, um, in dyads. <laughs>